0: thank you for being here on a fourth of july weekend it's so cool (laughs) that you are here you can go into coolness elsewhere later and thank for those of you who are watching online and for the crew that makes this possible and as usual let's um, let's begin in silence just do what it takes for you to be here take Brook Summers Period says, take three deep breaths through your nose. Let them out. And may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding, and grace may, may grace be in our ends and at our departing. So as you know, I'm trying to, in this current series, talk about how we can have a deeper, growing, evolving relationship with what we mean by God on the one hand, what we mean by self on the other, and Follow a path illumined by the life and teachings of Jesus, which we are going to get into deeper today. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. A wandering Aramean was my father. Those words are found in the book of Deuteronomy, and they are likely the earliest words we have written in our collection of Scripture. Not the first words in the Bible, but the earliest ones that were written. And these words are the beginning of a recitation about how the Jews reminded themselves of who they were and where they had come from. Now, for me, to talk about what it means to be a Jew is like my talking about what it means to be a woman (laughs) or what it means to talk about being a person of another race or ethnicity. I might know about, but I don't know of. I had a professor of Hebrew Scripture who... Began every one of his lectures with this line A wandering Aramean was my father. He wanted us to know, if we claimed to be in the Christian tradition, that we were unavoidably and unmistakably connected to Judaism. Jesus was a spirit person in the Jewish prophetic tradition. So, what is Judaism and what is a Jew? Now, over the years, my study of Scripture has led me into a deeper and deeper appreciation for the Jewish genius at liturgy and artistry. Our Christian Gospels are shaped, particularly the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are shaped by the Jewish liturgical year. Now, there are not many people who attend church even regularly who know that. And if that's the kind of thing that you might be interested in knowing more about, if you will let me know on one of those cards back there, I'll be happy to talk more about it. But I give you a tiny example of how Jewish, how our Christian scriptures were um Shaped by Jewish liturgy. I imagine most of you know the story about how Jesus, after he was baptized, was, the scripture says, driven into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he had three temptations. He was tempted to turn stone into bread, he was tempted to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. How they got the temple in the desert, I'm not sure. Uh, and he was tempted to bow down and worship Satan. You know those three temptations. Now, the rest of the gospel narratives present Jesus as the kind of person who probably wouldn't come out of an experience like that and say, hey guys, let me tell you what happened to me and then brag about it. That was not the character of Jesus. So Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience. And he wants to present Jesus as the new Moses. So Moses and the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is in the desert 40 days. Matthew just shortens the timeline quite a bit. The first temptation that the children of Israel are faced with, the first crisis, is a shortage of food. So manna, like bread from heaven, comes down, and they are fed. The second temptation or crisis that the Jewish people have is the lack of water. So Moses takes his staff and hits a rock, and water comes forth. And uh, it was said later that this one of the, the reason that Moses was not allowed into the Promised Land, because the children of Israel tempted God. They tested God. So the second temptation that Jesus has is a testing of God. The third trial that the Jewish people experienced was when Moses went up on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments so that he could bring them down and put them in the classroom of every school in Texas. <laughs> You've got to read the Bible carefully to get all this stuff <laughs> out of it. And while he was gone, they worshipped the golden calf. Yeah. And the third temptation of Jesus is to fall down and worship Satan. Three temptations that were drawn out of the Jewish life. Um, it's, it's, that's an illustration of the genius of Jewish artistry and their, their gift for, um, for liturgy. Jewish ethnicity, nationhood, and religion are strongly interrelated. And and they used a form of writing called midrash, midrashic writing, to go back into the synagogue after their experience with Jesus, take their Jewish writings, and then apply them to their understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus. And they crafted wonderful stories about the life of Jesus and his teaching. Judaism is an ethnic religion, and the Jewish people, like that of people who call themselves Christians, they have observed Judaism in a variety of ways over the centuries, just as Christians have had a variety of different definitions and ways of worship over the years. So one can be a Jew and not practice Judaism. Just as, culturally, one can be a Christian and not practice Christianity. So that if you ask people, what religion are you, many people out there will say, I'm a Christian, but they never are involved in any kind of Christian services or anything like that. The the Jewish religion started with Abraham and uh, trying to find the Abraham of history is about as difficult as trying to find the Jesus of history. Uh, The Jews originated as an ethnic and religious group in the Middle East somewhere around 2000 B.C., what we would call B.C. And in the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, Uh, you have what are called the laws of the Jewish people and the rules and regulations, the history that made the Jewish people who they were. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you find the rituals and laws that the Jewish people were told to observe because these are what make you Jewish. Uh, By the way, I just want to be clear that, and we'll get into this a little bit later in a minute, But those laws were written not with you and me in mind. They were written with Jewish people in mind. And they were written in order to help organize people politically. And also they had customs that helped set them apart from other people, which was really important. And a lot of the dietary laws that they followed... um, were simply common sense about how to eat food properly and preserve it properly and don't eat spoiled food and that sort of thing. So the word kosher that you've probably heard applied to Jewish food and practices simply means fit and proper. What is fit and proper? So if you read these documents, I doubt that you will, But if you do read them, you'll find that they have very practical advice about sanitation, tribal organization, all of that stuff, laws about marriage, money management, and so forth. And a lot of these rules are survival things, what they needed to survive. And um, many of them were designed to set them apart, particularly ways of dress, the long prayer shawls that the men wore. They, they, everything is detailed in, in these laws. And this is true of the right of circumcision, which was later uh, to become a controversy in the growing Christian movement. The early Christian, follow, The early followers of Jesus were Jewish, and as the movement attracted people who were not Jewish into the movement, There was a debate about whether people, men, not women, needed to be circumcised or not. Um, This is a big thing for Paul, who really was the one who sold the Christian religion to a broader, broader world. Jim Gaffigan, a stand-up comedian, I love stand-up, and uh, Jim Gaffigan had a book out a number of years ago, called Dad is Fat. And uh, Jim Gaffigan, those of you who don't know, he and his wife, Jeannie, have six children. And they they lived at the time in a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan with six babies. And Jeannie, his wife, when they had their first son, wanted to have him circumcised. And Jim didn't know anything about circumcision, so he decided to read about it find out about it and all that. And he found out that in the origin of circumcision was that God told Abraham to circumcise himself. Just think about that for a minute. Anyway, Jim Gaffigan imagines the day after this when Abraham steps out of the shower and Sarah sees him and says, Abe, what have you done to yourself? And Abraham says, well, God told me to do it. And she said, God told you to do it? Well, what if God told you to sacrifice one of your firstborn? And Abraham says, well, we got something to talk about. So. A few years ago, um, I came up with a description of this gathering about what it's about. And I gave it the theme that we are learning to live between the no longer and the not yet. The understandings of both Christianity and what it means to be a Christian don't hold for most people anymore. Now we're going to get to those for whom it does in a minute. But we in the United Methodist Church are affected by the disfellowship of churches that don't want to progress into the future, but who want to retreat into a past that they not only idealize but which in fact never really existed. A few weeks ago in here, I used this example about Southern Baptist's decision to purge churches that have females as pastors. And I said that this is the canary in the gold mine. It's not the only canary in the gold mine that we have experienced, but it's a big one. This made the pages of the New York Times and everything. And somebody asked me after that uh, what the canary in the gold mine metaphor meant. And um, years ago, canaries used to be used in coal mines before we had the technology we have now. And they were carried early into the coal mine because canaries having a much different metabolism, breath rate, and so forth, if there was dangerous gas, the canary would die before the coal miners did. So the canary in the coal mine is an indication that there's trouble ahead that we are dealing with. Now, those of us who don't want to make such a death march and yet who are still hungry for the boundary-crossing, barrier-breaking life and love offered by Jesus and his teachings, are finding ourselves in increasingly uncharted territory. And the answers given by the church in the past are not sufficient for the questions of our time. And I think that it is right at this point that our Jewish mothers and fathers offer a great deal for us in terms of their life, lifestyle, experience, and hope for a future. So what I want to teach a bit about today is that Jewish experience. It's known as the exile. And how that Jewish experience of exile is relevant for us. And for those of you who don't care for Bible teaching and history, just grit your teeth for a few minutes. We'll get through this, and then we'll get to what you think is relevant. So I am a child of the Civil Rights Movement. I graduated from high school in 1955. The, civil, the Supreme Court's decision to desegregate public education was that same year. I went away to the university and got involved in civil rights. Nashville, Tennessee. And that was a very valuable experience for me. A very difficult one. Uh, it put me at odds with my parents and people in my family and a lot of people in my culture. But I would not trade that experience for anything. And the people that I bonded with, I, the the men and women that I learned from caused me to believe that because of the various victories that we would experienced in civil rights, that that would be our future. At least the majority of people seem to me to be moving in the direction of more tolerance and inclusion, more um, in favor of justice for the other, freedom. I know uh, that there was a recession Regression, I guess you might say, after the pres- presidency of Barack Obama, but I truly thought that that was an anomaly. You know, we'll get through those four years, and then we'll get back to normal. I don't know if you read the papers or not, but that hasn't happened. As a as an aside, we had a very interesting experience the, to me the other night. Um, <clears throat> I not only I, I can't tolerate what's on commercial television. I'm tired of hearing about Trump. I get tired of hearing about the theme of the day, the, Atlant- the, the Titanic sub sinking. It, we we don't think about people who died in that earthquake in in Turkey and Syria not long ago anymore. That's not on the news. And as Sunny pointed out to me, the people who died in floods in Asia, we we just focus on just what seems to be the news making thing. Anyway I search for watching things on television that I think are entertaining and uplifting and so forth and I read in the Chronicle a couple of weeks ago that they were having a Katherine Hepburn festival on the Turner Broadcast Network and I thought Katherine Hepburn I, I remember her and I thought I got, got on Google and Katherine Hepburn's greatest movies and I found one and I said let's watch this tonight and we did I hope you've seen it. I know most of you have. And if you've not, go today and get it on Prime and watch it tonight. It's a movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Now, I want you to think about this. This film was made in 1967. 1967. The Supreme Court decision about loving versus Virginia had not been passed. There were 16 states in the United States at that time that did not sanction interracial marriage at the time this film was made. 1967. Everybody in this film, the people who play Sidney Poitier's parents, everybody, they do an outstanding acting job. I mean, it's just a brilliant film. And the speech that Spencer Tracy gives at the end of the film to them as a couple is just heart-wrenching beautifully. It's just wonderful. So after the film, and drying my tears, uh, I, w- I looked a film up on Wikipedia and found out a lot about it, and about the awards and everything, and the fact that every single actor in this film Agreed to do the film without ever having read the script because they were so committed to the principle behind the film. It's in 1967. And I'm a child of that era, kind of. Um, I thought that's where we were heading. but that's not so. And along with what's happened to the UMC, along the stories about the Southern Baptist and a score of other things, causing me increasingly to feel like a stranger in a strange land. My values, the values that I thought were the values of the country seemed to be leaving me in a place not of my own choosing. I'm so grateful for this place. But that got me to thinking about the Jewish people. The stories around Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are are for the most part parabolic. And as I said, just as it's difficult to know a lot about the Jesus of history, it's difficult to know the history of these people. But what we do know and what can be well documented is that around sometime around the year 605, B.C., what we call B.C., the nation of Judah, the Jewish people, which was not very big, found itself under attack by an army from the north, the Babylonian army. And they were under the command of a man who has a great name, Nebuchadnezzar. And... Um, The Jewish people had learned by this time that it wasn't safe to be in the countryside. So they went to the city of Jerusalem, which was at that time a safe fortress. Jerusalem was built on a hill. It was surrounded by high thick walls and from within it, a small Jewish army, as it had done before, could hold off a much, much larger army. And so since they had done this before, the Jews knew to keep adequate resources at hand so they could withstand the siege. The enemy on the outside usually ran out of resources before the Jews on the inside did. So um, what the leader of the Jews at that time would do would... Uh, broker a peace, and the Jewish leader would go outside and do something to cause the invading army not to lose face, which was an important thing in that Eastern world, and they would take whatever it was and go away and be happy, and the Jews would live in peace for another 100 years after tribute was paid. So up until this time that I'm talking about, about 580, 590 B.C., The Jews had had 100 years of peace, and that's how fortified they were. They were just safe. And during this time, they had built this magnificent temple within the city. This is the temple that Solomon built. And this temple was believed to be the literal dwelling place of God. God lived in this temple. Now, you've got to get that in mind. God lived in the temple in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. And when it is said that when the sun, the rising sun hit the golden stone, golden looking stone of the city of Jerusalem, it looked like the golden city. And that's why you've got your image of heaven as the golden city. It was a place where heaven and earth came together. And Over the years of peace and prosperity, the Jewish people had developed a theology and an identity that had led them to believe that they were invincible. It was called the city of God. And because the Jews had developed the identity to be God's chosen people, and they had this long history of peace, they developed this belief that God was protecting them, that nothing could happen to them. Part of their theology was that God blessed the righteous. God took care of his, God the he, people. God punished the unjust. This is why when you get later into the teachings of Jesus, perhaps the most radical thing he ever said was, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Because that was not part of Jewish theology. Okay? Now you can see this mentality reflected in a book we call the book of Micah, where the, where the prophet warned that these assumptions are going to get you into trouble. But by the time of this attack, by the Babylonians around 600 B.C. Jewish worship had been centralized to Jerusalem. All the faithful Jews were expected to go to Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, those three highly days. But on this particular attack by the Babylonians, things did not go well. The Babylonians would not relent. This, uh, the king of Judah at the time was Jehoiakim. So he decided to seek a negotiated settlement, which they'd done in the past. So he goes out to uh, make peace, and the Babylonians do horrible things. Not only do they not accept him, they enter the city, they invade the city, they decimate everything, they kill everybody. And... um, Finally, it lasted a long time, and finally about uh, 586 or so, they burned down the whole thing, tore it down, tore down everything. And worst of all, for the Jews, they tore down the temple, which is where God lived. Now, you can read all about this after you finish Deuteronomy and Leviticus today by reading First and Second Kings. And that'll wait. By then you'll be through the 4th of July. But uh, read it. It's a ghastly, horrible story. Um, the, the Babylonians <clears throat> took the sons of the, of, of the king of the Jews at the time, Zedekiah, out of the city and they killed them in front of him. And then they gouged out his eyes so that his last scene would be watching his children murdered. The children, Citizens of Jerusalem, those who remained, were gathered together and they were force-marched off into Babylon. They would never see their homeland again. They would never again worship in their beloved temple. And everything that gave these Jews their identity, everything they valued, everything that gave order to their life was gone. So along the forced march from Jerusalem to Babylon, soldiers would taunt the Jews. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. <clears throat> but the Jews could not sing. They could only weep. They could weep and remember. Because the God to whom they directed their songs and prayers was no more. That God was not in Babylon. Babylon. And so you have this plaintive cry in the Psalms. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They were in exile. A wandering Aramean is my father. By the time of Jesus, the Jews had come back to Jerusalem. The temple, in a way, had been rebuilt. The occupying force now was Rome. They allowed the Jews to have access to the temple. But the Jews were vassals. They were at the bottom of the economic and social heap, except for those who sold out and became leaders, vassals of the Roman government, representing the Jews and the Jewish religion. It was a complicated thing. It was never really a land of peace again. They were occupied people and place from that time on. The Jews still went to Jerusalem for high holy days. That's why you find Jesus being taken for his circumcision, Jesus going for Pentecost and for Passover and for those festivals. There was a sect of the Jews called the Zealots who thought, we'll get these Romans someday, but that never turned out. And when they did try to do that, they got defeated. This is an important part of our history. All this is an important part of our history because Jesus was a Jewish spirit person. Jesus was a Jew. And he inherited the religion of his time. He didn't like it, a lot of it. He knew it. He could quote the scripture. But he also was out to reform it. Just as I had a professor who began every lecture uh, with this line, it was commonplace for a biblical professor in seminary, at least the one I went to, uh, to call on students and say, uh, Mr. Curley, would you please tell us the Sitz Leben of the passage we are considering? And uh, Sitz Leben is a German phrase Next Sunday, I'm going to get into talking about how the Germans have influenced our theology so much. But the German phrase means setting in life. What is the setting in life of this passage? So um, at the time, and although that's been changed somewhat over the last 30 years, but at the time of my seminary education, the really brilliant lights in theology and biblical studies were German. Paul Tillich was a German. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German. Um, Rudolf Bultmann was a German. Emil Brunner was a German. You just go on and on with all the German. Albert Schweitzer was a German. Was just all of those, those people, the Germans have a mind for doing this kind of study. That's why biblical, uh, read, being able to read theological German was a requirement for me in seminary and graduate school. I can remember complaining about having to take German and French, and my professor said, oh, it'll come in useful to you in your ministry. (laughs) Well, that was a lie. (laughs) Anyway, though it was not what I was taught growing up in the Baptist Church in Tennessee, the writings of the Bible were not written with us in mind. And just as the Jewish laws were not meant to be applied to us, the books that make up our Christian New Testament were written for people who lived in the first hundred years or so after the birth and life of Jesus. They were written at a time and with a worldview that no longer exists. You can language that by saying a worldview that has been taken away from us, or a worldview we've been extruded from. Either one, it ain't our world anymore. So as we go forward and look at some of the specific passages taken from the Jesus narrative, I'm going to be focusing on what is the Sitz and Laban uh, for engaging these teachings of Jesus. And by Sits and Laban, we will be asking, what is the world behind the text? What was the world that existed prior to the time these words were spoken or written? What is the world uh, of the text? Who was Paul writing to? Who was Jesus speaking to? What was Matthew's agenda, for example, in writing? And then what is the world in front of the text? So it must have been excruciatingly painful for the Jews to lose their God. It must have been excruciatingly painful for them to lose their sacred place. What had given them shape, definition, and meaning was taken away from them. And that's what you see happening today. For example, for the Baptists that I have mentioned, for some Methodists, for a fairly significant number of uh, American population. Everything that they had that undergirded their belief system is gone. Now this didn't happen to us as it happened to the Jews in one kind of fell swoop over a 18, 20 year period of time. This happened to us slowly over the decades. As new knowledge about the cosmos has come into um, people's awareness. I cannot tell you how many people have said to me in the time I have been here, I can't say the creed in the church anymore. I don't believe in that kind of universe or God. God isn't up there. Uh, Shelby Spong, who's spoken in this very space uh, a few times, and uh, whom Holly and I used as a guide on our way through the Gospel of John, a man for whom I have a great deal of love. He's a big guy, and um spent time with him through the Jesus Seminar. He's really a very engaging, engaging man. I, this, this is by Raphael, by the way. This is a picture of the Ascension, in case you weren't there. Uh <laughs> John Shelby Spong had a conversation with uh, Carl Sagan once in which Carl Sagan said, quote, if Jesus literally ascended into the sky and traveled at the speed of light, he hasn't yet escaped our galaxy. So this says, uh, for those of you who can't read, over the next few weeks, Jesus appeared to his disciples and many other witnesses. Then he ascended into heaven. And one guy saying, where, where? I can't see him. That's because he has ascension deficit disorder. Those of you who groan, get with those who laughed. And get those who laughed explain it to you. Just remember that a pun is a joke that is fully grown. That's not in my notes. I hope there is nobody in this room who believes that ascending is the route to heaven. You don't have to go anywhere to get into heaven. According to Jesus. We inhabit the kingdom of God now by how? Not what we believe. But by how we love one another. There's a scarcity of that out there. And the followers of Jesus came to believe that because he had made. The experience, he was a Jewish spirit person. Because he had made the experience of God so real to them, he must have come from God. So Jesus lived at a time when people believed there was an all-seeing God in the sky who paid constant attention to them. They were Jews. For good or ill, God is watching Now, I was taught that in Baptist church too. But there was a heaven above, and there was an abode for the dead below. It was a time when miracles and magic abounded. Good events were the result of God's blessing, and bad ones, the just reward for the sinners of the earth. God was male, God was mighty, God was a warrior if this God could be prevailed upon to intervene in human affairs. Further, the God of the Jews is very tribal. You've got to keep that in mind too. Very masculine God. So God had freed the slaves of of, of the Jews from slavery in Egypt by doing what? Killing the firstborn of all the Egyptian children. That's a story. And then killing all the soldiers that pursued them when the waters came back. And then the Jews got into the promised land by becoming a marauding, warrior warrioring people that conquered the land of Canaan. And then God led them to slaughter the Philistines. And the Jews love this God. Now, of course, if you were an Egyptian, a Philistine, or a Canaanite, you might not take kindly to a God like this. His God was not a God of love. So one of Jesus' prime missions... And I think this is one of the best pieces of good news that we can hear, is that Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God. And then, after our minds are changed, and by the way, that is the definition of conversion, we're to be the boundary-crossing, barrier-breaking people that Jesus was. Now, I want you to notice that both religiously and politically in our time, the desire is to go back into a world that no longer exists. It actually never really did exist in the imagination that we have. Um, So the Jesus Movement Uh, did well if not chaotically for the first several hundred years of its life. If you go back to that period of time you will find there were many ways, different ways to be a Christian. And they loved each other. They didn't start killing each other until they decided what was in the Bible. It's a history, fact of history. And 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 then, um, all sorts of stuff hit the fan when in the early 14th, 4th century, Constantine imagined that he saw a sign in the sky. In this sign, we conquer at the bridge of Mulvane. And that led Constantine to defeat his enemy and gain control of the Roman Empire. And then he had this bunch of disparate Christians, followers of Jesus. They were called Christians at that time. And um, he said, i got, I got to do something about this. Because I I need to put the, the, the country together. And I know what, I'll get these, I'll get these people who follow Jesus together. And, and get them to agree on what they believe, and we'll just make that the religion of the land. At this time, God still lived in the sky. Constantine saw the sign, the sign in the sky. And <clears throat> make a long story really short, um, Constantine called the first church council, not the church. And he got the people together and told them what to do. And like any good political caucusing group, the people with the most money and the most power won out. That was the church in Rome. They were going to be the universal church, Catholic, and so we have the Roman Catholic church now in Rome. And that lasted until the middle of the 14th, 15th century. The kind of understanding that I'm talking about It really existed until those three ontological shocks that I mentioned to you before in here. When uh, Copernicus revealed that the earth was not the center of the universe. When Darwin did the work that led to the understanding of the evolving nature of all that is. And then when Freud revealed that 90% of who we think we are is underneath the surface of the water. We don't know who we are. And now, of course, even that has gotten hugely amplified in our time by the discoveries of the Hubble Telescope and the James Webb Telescope. And I read just this week, there's another telescope about to be launched in the sky that is going to be dedicated to the sole purpose of discovering black holes. We just are on the front edge, if we last that long, of discovering what this energy field is. Now, the process of adjusting to all this has led to many people to inevitable trauma. And the most frightened and reactionary of us have become fundamentalist, either politically or religiously. And the rest of us are stuck with this opportunity, this massive opportunity, to deconstruct the theology and spirituality that has housed us into learning to live in exile. The exile in which we find ourselves, which is why I call today's talk, Wandering and Wandering in Exile. Now, Jesus and his teachings show us, I believe, I, am a fo- I want to be a follower of Jesus and in that way identify myself as Christian I believe that Jesus and his teachings show us a way that can illuminate our path through these times. I believe that the journey is energizing and exciting. Um, clearly, not everybody sees it that way. Um, now, but before going further in it, with that particular thing, I do want to acknowledge that there are a lot of roadblocks in following this path of Jesus and his teachings. And I just want to, I want to acknowledge that they're there because they apply to some of you who are sitting here. Uh, one of the roadblocks is that we think we know it already. We know the story. We know the guy. We've heard it since we, if we grew up in church. Since we were little kids, we know everything there is to know about Jesus. So that when most scripture passages are read in worship services, we shut down because there's nothing for me here. I know this. That's one big roadblock that we have another roadblock that we have is a lot of people have been hurt and disappointed by the teachings of jesus or by what they call the church people in the church have done harmful things to them we know about of course sexual abuse but there are all sorts of ways that people have hurt people by shaming people causing them to feel guilty by excluding people um and a lot of people have, have had that. They don't. I've, I've, I've had people who say, I'd love to come to your class, but I can't walk into a church. That, the after effects for some people. And, and another thing that is a roadblock to people is that deconstructing and reconstructing is hard work. Uh, it's hard Intellectually. Because you have got to dig into the material and see what's there. Fortunately, we have a ton of outstanding scholarship to lead us in this area. But it's also hard emotionally. It's hard to take something that you have believed since you were a child and just put it on the shelf. In the museum where it belongs, you know. and That's hard to do. I imagine a lot of you when you get in trouble you can't find a parking place or something happens you pray dear god help me it's just that reactionary thing i think that it, it, it or it's been helpful to me to know the kind of biblical information that i've offered to you today that's been helpful to me and I, I just assume that it might be helpful to you to know what contributes to what I call biblical and religious literacy, especially when it comes to be about Jesus and his teachings. So what was the context into which Jesus was born? Uh, what were the influences when he was from birth to, say, 16, that influenced what What did he see? How did he live? What did he eat? How did his family hang out? What did they do? How was it that he lived in such a way that his early followers said, wow, this guy is the Messiah. Now, that's a word we'll have to deconstruct later. It's applied to other people in the Old Testament, so it didn't just go belong to Jesus. But in this guy, we see something. That's why I think it's important to know the religion of Jesus himself. Judaism was a racial Ethnic identity and the practice of Jewish rituals, especially what we know as the High Holy Days, was important for these rituals and identity because it kept them from being absorbed into Roman culture. You get the connection. Knowing this material and practicing this stuff will keep you from being absorbed by what's happening out there. The canary in the coal mine kind of thing. That culture is coming more and more to us. Carl you uh, Carl said, if you don't tell the world who you are, it will tell you. We need to know this stuff. Now, it may come as a surprise to you to know, but did you know that in the Bible, Jesus never says he's God? All through the narratives, Jesus prayed to God. I don't think he was a schizophrenic talking to himself. What was his understanding of God? He had that worldview, not ours. But he had an understanding of God that was radically different from the Jewish people. So I want to say just a little bit about who Jesus was. Uh, First of all, he was a Jewish mystic. And what I mean by that was that God was an experiential reality for Jesus. It's like um, when Carl Jung was asked, do you, know, do you believe in God? And he said, no, I know God. That's a mystic, somebody who knows that spiritual orientation. I think Jesus' own experience of the sacred was what authenticated his teachings. Jesus was a healer. He was an exorcist. There are more healing stories told about Jesus than any other person in that era. I'm quoting now from uh, John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, who have done the research about the Jesus of history, and they know all the other people who at at that time in history had a status similar to his. And more stories are told about him than any one of these others. He was a wisdom teacher. He used classic forms of wisdom teachers, like parables, to say what God was like and what life was like and what the way was like. And he was a prophet. Um, Like the prophets of the Jewish tradition, he was very critical of the domination system. Um, and, and perhaps more than anything else, it was his prophetic stance for justice and inclusion that led to his execution. Now, a prophet is not somebody who um, predicts a future in some spooky way. But I heard Crossan say one time, um, if you go pitch a pup tent in the middle of I-45 and get run over by a truck, don't be surprised alright pay attention to the way you live because it has consequences and the prophets could see what the Jewish people were doing in collaborating with the enemy just to get by and they said look if you keep this up this is what's going to happen that's a, prof- that's a prophetic tradition and Jesus was in that tradition and, and he was a movement initiator and just very short time He started a movement around him that embodied his vision and his passion for God. Crossan says that um, John the Baptist, for whom Jesus, I think, served some time in his company. John the Baptist um, had um, a monopoly on his teaching. And Jesus had a franchise (laughs) because he deputized people to go to what I'm doing. That means that if we're going to follow him, that we're his deputies in that sense. We have to teach and be Jesus to the world. Marcus Borg, whom I've quoted a couple times today, uh, he's a great authority on the life and teachings of Jesus. He was once on a television program and he was told that he would have a minute and 15 seconds to answer the question, what was Jesus like? And here's how he answered that question. Jesus was from the peasant class. Clearly, he was brilliant. His use of language was markable and poetic, filled with images and stories. He had a metaphoric mind. He was not an ascetic, but world-affirming with a zest for life. There was a socio-political passion about him like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King. He challenged the domination system of his day. He was a religious ecstatic, a Jewish mystic for whom God (coughs) was an experiential reality. And as such, Jesus is also a healer. There seems to have been a presence about him like reported as St. Francis or the present Dalai Lama. As a figure of history, Jesus was an ambiguous figure. You could experience him and conclude that he was insane as his family did. Or that he was simply eccentric. Or that he was a dangerous threat. Or you could conclude that he was filled with the Spirit of God. That's my choice. And it's that sense that I can say I love Jesus and uh, these teachings. And and to me, following Jesus is a journey that is exciting and energizing. But more than that, it, it, it's life, life-giving. Um, now, I know that reconstructing and reformulating the teachings of Jesus for our lifetime is not without its difficulties. Um, though I was taught about deconstructing the Bible when I was in seminary, Beginning in 1959, I quickly learned that people outside of cemetery walls do not necessarily take kindly to it. <laughs> because it tends to do away with the illusion of security and comfort that resides in hanging on to certain beliefs and practices that people have had for decades. Especially if you're handed something and say, believe this, because this makes you part of us. Right? And if you don't believe it, then where are you? You're in exile. And that's where we can learn from the Jews. But it also explains why there's so much reactivity uh, in our culture. That It's one of the reasons that next week when we gather, Holly and I are not teaching together next week, but the week following that, and we're going to talk about life eternal, life after death. I'm going to be quiet and listen to Holly. To, she doesn't know that yet. Yeah. But next week, I want to talk more explicitly how we move beyond theism and and affirm that moving beyond theism doesn't mean moving beyond God. But it does mean giving up a certain worldview and the beliefs that go with that worldview. So, to conclude, what is our Sitz in Laban? Our own Sitz in Laban. Well... We live in a time of bitter and destructive divisiveness. We also live in a time where we live in an energy field that is constantly evolving, you know, constantly evolving. And, and further, if we choose to be people of faith, we, we live with the identity that who we are is who we are in God no more, no less. Not who I am in my marriage or in my country or in my race or my gender, but who I am in God. No more, no less. And we learn to live with the faith and hope that that's enough. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this you carry a precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat>